It is from Psalm 80, and I would encourage you, if you have your Bibles with you, to open them. We sang Psalm 80, and singing is uh, what the Psalms are designed for, but um, it's a little bit of a paraphrase, so the sermon is going to be from the reading, so I'd suggest you read along. It is a truism in counseling, which is my other hat. I mean, I wear three, I guess. I'm primarily your pastor. That is what my calling is, but I'm also an EKU professor. I'm also a Christian counselor. In counseling, it is a truism that if somebody is truly addicted, they're not going to overthrow an addiction unless they have an absolute crisis. Something happens in their life, it's life-threatening, it threatens to blow everything up, it's obviously a crisis, usually the way it's described as they have to hit rock bottom. Uh, They're not going to change until that happens. And counselors know that, they kind of look for that, In a lot of ways, they have to kind of back up and let people do that. You know, you have to hit that place where you realize this is life and death in some way and you need life. What is true about what God uses by means for breaking addictions oftentimes is also true about breaking men of sin because sin certainly has an overlove layover of of addiction. Sin is the vices and temptations of our fallen nature. It has uh, cords and vines it wraps us in. It's a a master were its slave. The psychological effect is very much the same. God oftentimes in his providence uses absolute disaster, absolute rock bottom to bring us to the point where we are desirous of being freed from sin. When we desire that, when we crawl to God and beg him for that, we are repentant. And this psalm is without doubt a prayer of repentance. Repentance is all over it. You're watching people repent. And repentance is a pretty significant thing. In the shorter catechism, in question 87, we have a definition of repentance unto life, which places the doctrine of repentance in its context of what happens when you become a saved person. And here is how the Shorter Catechism defines that. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, apprehension of the mercy of Christ, and apprehension of the mercy of Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. That is repentance unto life. It's called a, quote, saving grace, not because you do it and therefore are saved. It's a saving grace in that God gives this grace to people he is saving. 
a person that God is saving turns to God in repentance, he hates sin, he longs for God, he makes an A180 turn. He turns around and goes the exact opposite direction he has been going. And the biblical word for repentance, that's the essence of its meaning. I have been going this direction, I am now going to go that direction, I am making a turn, I am going to go in the opposite direction, because I realize what a fool I've been. I realize what disaster I'm bringing on myself. I'm going to stop walking away from God, and I'm going to walk towards God. That is repentance. And it generally happens, as I said, when God in his providence uses absolute disaster to shock you into the need of turning in repentance. This psalm uh, is the very essence of a confession of hitting rock bottom. Listen to verse 5 through verse 16. You have fed them, that is, your people, you have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in great measure. You have made us a strife to our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts, Cause your face to shine, and we will be saved. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow, and the mighty cedars with its boughs. She sent out her boughs to the sea and her branches to the river. Why have you broken down her hedges? so that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit. The boar out of the woods uproots it, and the wild beast of the field devours it. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and visit this vine and the vineyard which your right hand has planted and the branch that you made strong for yourself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Does that sound like rock bottom to you? Does that sound like absolute disaster? Well, it is. The psalmist talks about you brought your people out of Egypt, you planted them like a vine that you were going to care for, and it grew, and it was blessed, and prosperity attended it. It stretched out towards the Euphrates River. It, it went along the coast of the sea, it grew healthy and strong, and now the boar of the, the, the forest rips it apart, the, the little predators, whether the word means insects or whether it means little animals, either way, big and small, everyone is destroying it, you have burned it with fire, you are angry with it. We are in absolute ruin. We are in absolute disaster. We have, have, have smacked down, and we are going to perish unless you uh, bless us. That sounds very much like repentance. And in fact, we're going to see other aspects of repentance as we look at the psalm. Those who are praying are at rock bottom. Things have absolutely gone south completely. Now, who is it who is praying this psalm? Well, 
if you look at the references in it, geographical references, uh, you come to realize he's praying it. In the first verse, the Lord is said to, quote, lead Joseph like a flock. Joseph, of course, is a reference to the guy from Egypt. Uh, two of his sons become tribes in Israel, Manasseh and uh, Ephraim. And Ephraim becomes the leader of northern Israel. In fact, at times in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, northern Israel will be called Ephraim because it's so important. So you lead Joseph like a flock. You need to shine forth. Shine forth in front of who? Well, in verse 2, it's in front of Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. So that, again, has both tribes that come from Joseph mentioned. You need to shine forth in front of Ephraim and Manasseh. You have led Joseph like a flock. Everything about this psalm talks about the northern kingdom of Israel. They are the ones who are praying. This is a prayer that the Holy Spirit has inspired in the context of the kingdom that has uh, split off from Judah. Uh, Things are not going well. If you want to see what's going on in northern Israel about this time, you need to flip over to the book of uh, Amos. And in the first two chapters of Amos... God brings condemnation on northern Israel and also all the nations around it. And a lot of the condemnation that's brought upon the nations have to do with the fact that the nations are absolutely destroying northern Israel. They are invading it. Terrible things are happening. War and genocide. Uh, Let me read just a, a little bit of this to give you a sense of a day in the life of northern Israel about the time that Psalm 80 is being prayed. I'm going to read verse 9 through 15 of Amos chapter 1. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So this country, Tyre, is going to be punished because they've been attacking northern Israel and taking slaves and selling them to Edom, who has been treating them like slaves. Um, They haven't, quote, remembered a treaty of brotherhood because there is is brotherhood here. They didn't remember that. Israelites are being sold to them. But I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, which shall devour its palaces, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, those who were buying the slaves, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. His anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So that's been happening, and that's not good. The Edomites have been killing their brothers, the the northern Israelites. But I will send a fire upon Teman, which shall devour the palaces of Basra. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the people of Ammon, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they ripped open the women with child in Gilead, which is northern Israel, that they might enlarge their territory. 
But I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour its palaces amid shouting in the day of battle and a tempest in the day of whirlwind. Their king shall go into captivity, he and his princes together, says the Lord. I read the last part just for completeness. You get an idea of what it's like to be in northern Israel. Everyone around them is enslaving them, murdering them, and killing their pregnant women. This is about as low as you can get. They are in a state of absolute destruction. Uh, God is bringing his wrath upon them, and the psalm says that. You have burned the vine. You have brought it to ruin. You are causing this. They are acknowledging the wrath of God. Now, there is a fly in this ointment. When I read the three tribes that are specifically mentioned, I mentioned Ephraim and Manasseh, but the psalm also mentions Benjamin. And Benjamin is not part of northern Israel. It is part of Judah. It has allied itself with the southern kingdom. Why is it mentioned? Well, it's because even though they were separate, they weren't that separate. When the prophet Hosea preaches at the northern kingdom of Israel, in uh, chapter 4, verses 12 through 18, uh, this is what he says to northern Israel. My people ask counsel from their wooden idols. And their staff informs them. For the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. They offer sacrifices on the mountaintops and burn incense on the hills, under oaks, poplars, and terebinths, because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters commit harlotry, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry, nor your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with a ritual harlot. Therefore people who do not understand will be trampled. Though you Israel play the harlot, says the prophet, though this is who you are, you've fallen deeply into sin, uh, you're about the lowest of the low as far as where you are covenantally as well as, as far as wrath, Though you, Israel, play the harlot, let not Judah offend. Do not come up to Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, nor swear an oath saying, as the Lord lives. For Israel is like a stubborn calf. Now the Lord will let them forage like a lamb in the open country. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Now, who is the prophet talking to when he says, leave Ephraim alone, they are idolaters? Well, he's actually talking to those who would be faithful to God. In this case, southern Judah, Ephraim is given over to idols, don't have anything to do with him. Their drink is rebellion, uh, and so on. Again, I'm finishing only for completeness. Um, The prophet Hosea says to Israel, now, Don't let your wickedness drip down to the south. Don't let them become infected with the idolatries and the immoralities you have embraced. Northern Northern Judah, leave them alone. Don't touch them. You see, they are separated from the kingdom of Judah, but the separation 
doesn't make anything better. It does make everything worse. And one of the things that happens is the idolatry from the north comes south because the people interact. And where does Benjamin sit geographically? Well, if you look at a map, Benjamin is on the very northern border of Judah, which places it right on the border of the kingdom of Israel. And everything I read about happening in Amos, that's right next door. The chance of it not coming south and having affected Benjamin is almost nil because the sins of the northerners affect the southerners both as far as being a temptation and the wrath of God pouring on them. It's, it's hitting Benjamin just like everybody else. And um, it, it's a bad deal. They are absolutely at rock bottom. Now, what exactly had Israel done? I've read the words of the prophets. They've been rather picturesque in explaining what they're like. But if you look at it with a broad brush, they've done a number of things that are very, very significant. They have broken from the house of David. God has promised David, to your line will come the branch our righteousness. To your line will come the greater David, the great king, who will rule over all my people forever. This will be a part of my covenant. The kingdom of David is incorporated into the saving covenant. The southerners, the northerners have broken with the line of David, which means they have broken with all those promises. They will not be in the kingdom of David. They are separated from the throne of David. They are covenantally separated from the kingship. They have rejected God's prophets. If you read the historical books, God will send prophets to the northern kingdom, and those prophets will die. They'll be killed. They'll be rejected. If we looked at Amos further, we would see a passage where Amos prophesies against northern Israel, and uh, he's told, go home. Go back to Tekoa. Go back south. Don't prophesy here. We don't want to hear you in the north. This is the king's place of worship. Don't you come talking about God in the king's place of worship. You're not, you're not welcome here. So they have broken with the prophets. The prophets are God's way of uh, denouncing his people but drawing them back. They are the voice of God's pleading with people to return covenantally, but northern Israel has broken with the prophets. They won't hear them. Northern Israel has broken with the temple. If uh, you read the rebellion when the north breaks off, the first thing they think about is, well, if you worship God rightly, you have to go to Jerusalem to worship him. That's right in the heart of Judah. We don't want our people going to Judah like that. We don't want them going religiously. Let's establish new religious places for our people to go. And so they established three alternate places for worship to take place. And at two of them, it centered around a golden calf. In two out of three places, they remint a golden calf and they tell the northerners, this is a symbol of God. 
You can worship the God of the Bible with a golden calf. After all, didn't Aaron make them a golden calf to worship at Mount Sinai? I mean, this goes way back. You, you just worship God here, and this is how you worship him at a golden calf. So they have broken with God's regulatory principle. They don't worship God aright. And they are bowing down to a golden calf, which their priests will tell them, this is a representation of the God of the Bible, but it's not. It wasn't the God of the Bible at the base of Mount Sinai, even though Aaron said it was. If you go back and read the account in Exodus 33, Aaron tells Israel, "Not this is a new God. He has a golden calf made, and he says, Behold the God that brought you out of Egypt. God had a different opinion. But they have broken with the king. They have broken with the prophet. They have broken with the priest. They have broken with their God. What is the covenant of God built around? It is built around three great ministries It's built around the ministry of the king. It is built around the ministry of the priest. It is built around the ministry of the prophet. They have broken with prophet, priest, and king. These are all the the anointings that our Lord Jesus Christ will wear. These are the anointings through which God unites his people with himself and they have broken with all of them, overtly. That's a lot to do. And that explains verse 4, which oftentimes strikes readers very hard. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? God is angry at praying people. God is angry at religious people, devoted people, pious people. Why would God be angry at prayer? Well, it turns out in God's economy, to be religious doesn't really make much difference. To be religious, uh, God doesn't care if you're religious. God cares if you worship God. And there are all sorts of religious people in the world who are either worshiping God against his commandments, so they're effectively bowing down to golden calves, or they're worshiping gods that are not gods, and they are praying fervently, and they are praying with all sincerity, and they are praying with conviction, and the only thing that is happening is they are making the actual true God very angry. Because God is actually angry at sincere religion. He is angry at true piety. He is angry at true religious conviction that is not dedicated to him. Our God is a jealous God. I didn't make that line up. God would have his people worship him. He would have them be faithful to him. And so every time they go to those golden calves, every time they go to those three places of worship, Every prayer they offer brings God's wrath more. 
They come away from their prayers and devotion more under his wrath than less. What does this psalm, this prayer, seek? Well, without doubt, it seeks physical restoration. When the northern Israelites pray this prayer, uh, they don't focus on, Lord, we're emptying our souls. They say, we're getting killed, and the vine is burned. You have torn down the nation. We are being destroyed. They have seen the hand of God's wrath in pretty practical ways, and they're praying a prayer that that would stop. That's part of the prayer. Stop burning the vine. Stop letting our enemies destroy the country. Um, we, we really would like you to answer our prayer in a very tangible, earthy way. Uh, our life depends upon you taking away your wrath and actually restoring us, and that restoration is pretty physical. It is not, uh, you know, piously spiritual. But under that, there is a very practical request that if they don't receive it, they will never receive the restoration physically they're praying for. What is under it is in a refrain that comes out in the psalm three times. Verse 3 reads, Restore us, O God, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. Verse 7 reads, Restore us, O God of hosts, of hosts is added, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. And then in verse 19 it reads, Restore us, O Lord God of hosts, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. Notice anything fairly repetitive? In this psalm, they say it three times. Twice they focus on the fact that God is the Lord of hosts, which means the Lord of armies. It focuses on his power. But, Lord, restore us, make your face shine upon us. If your face shines upon us, if, if there's a brightness in your countenance on us, then we shall be saved. The shining face of God has been longed for by people whom God's grace has touched for a very, very long time. The earliest bit of writing that we know of was found in a, a grave, a, a small girl's grave, probably about 11 years old. It was not written in Hebrew, it was written in Phoenician. It was on a, a little scroll out of hammered gold, and it was laying on her forehead. And on her forehead were these words. You find them in the book of Numbers. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way they shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It's the blessing of Aaron. It's 
the blessing that the priests were to say to the people of God, there's lots of things there that's utterly gracious, like be gracious to us, lift up your countenance upon us, give us peace, but the line, make your face shine upon us, is right there in the blessing. And on this little girl's forehead was the blessing of Aaron. Lord, shine your face upon us. What does it mean that God's face would shine? Well, have you ever approached somebody that you really wanted to have the approval of, and as you came into their presence, they smiled, and it felt like the entire room lit up? Have you ever been received graciously by that smile that you were longing for, and it came? It might not have, but it was there, and you were accepted, and it was, it was like it could melt butter. That's what's being talked about. Lord, make your face shine upon us. Look on us with happiness. Look on us with pleasure. Look on us with grace and love. Be glad that we belong to you. This was not something they cared about before disaster. Before God sent his wrath in very tangible ways and began to burn the vine, uh, they didn't really care what God thought, to be honest. They were thinking in very, very practical terms, political terms, uh, pragmatic terms. But now the Lord is turning their hearts, bending them back to him. He is using outer circumstances of disaster to do that. And if you repent, you now care what God thinks. You want God to look on you with favor. You want God to look on you graciously. It matters to you how God looks at you. And while they're praying, yeah, Lord, things have absolutely gone to heck in a handbasket, what they're now praying is, Lord, be gracious to us. Uh, Care about us. Look at us with kindness. We want you to love us. The flesh, if left to its own devices, hates God. I mean, I could cite hundreds of passages in the Bible. Flesh that God is not bothering by the Holy Spirit doesn't care what God thinks. It absolutely hates God. But when the Spirit gets a hold of you, when God begins to move, when you're being brought to repentance, it begins to break your heart that God is mad You know, the fact that the city's on fire is significant, but more than that, God is angry, and you begin to care what God thinks. And they care, and they're praying, Lord, look on us, let your favor shine upon us again. Now, The psalmist and those praying the psalm have a specific idea of how God's grace will accomplish this restoration and how they will know if God's face is shining upon them. And that is in verse 17 and 18. There we read these words. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand. Upon the Son of Man, who you made strong for yourself, then we will not turn back from you. Now, we have been turning back from you. 
Our entire organized life has been turning back from you. But if you do this, we won't. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us, and we will call upon your name, which we've not been doing. Well, what is it? Well, it's let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the Son of Man whom you made strong for yourself. Who is that? Well, if you've read the Bible, you know who that is. That's the language God uses for the king of his choice. He chooses who will be king of Israel. He calls him the man of my right hand. The the prayer of northern Israel in repentance is, Lord, bless the king who is anointed, your king, the, the son of David. Bless him, let him be righteous and strong, and come deliver us through the son of David. Let your son, your king, who is your under-shepherd, let him come and deliver us, and that will be your deliverance. This is very, very different from what they were saying when they left. When they left, this is what we read in 1 Kings, beginning in verse 16. Now when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, now see to your own house, O David. So Israel departed to their tents. But Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah. So when they left, they said, we have nothing in David. We don't want David. Down with David. There's no inheritance in David. They're talking about the ordained king, the Messiah, the anointed king. We don't want him. Now they're saying, you know, we've rethought that. By the son of David, by the anointed king, by your Messiah, come and save us. And when you do that, you will make us faithful. We won't turn back from you when you do that. We will call upon your name when you do that. Were the people answered? Well, to see the answer to the prayer, you have to go elsewhere. We have to go back to uh, Hosea, and specifically chapter 1. Beginning in chapter 1 at verse 2, we read this. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, For the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of the blame, and she conceived and bore him a son. This is the only place where it said it's his son, by the way. Then the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu, and bring him into the kingdom of the house of Israel. Which happens. Northern Israel is swept away. Um, pagans take them into captivity. Northern Israel is swept off the map, and the ten tribes of northern Israel no longer have a physical expression ever, ever again. That takes place. It shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bore a daughter, not his daughter, a daughter. Then God said to him, Call her name Lo-Ruhamah, 
for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Yes, I will have mer- yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them by the Lord their God, and not and will not save them by bow, nor by sword or battle, by horses or horsemen. So, a uh, second child, child of harlotry, uh, that child is, I won't have any mercy on Israel, uh, I'll utterly take them away. Now when she had weaned Lo-Rahama, she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. A great divorce had happened. They broke in with prophet, broke in with priest, broke in with king, they're out of the covenant. Well, you're not my people, and I will not be your God. Yet, the chapter ends with a word of promise. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, There it shall be said to them, You are sons of the living God. Then the children of Judah, the southern kingdom, and the children of Israel, the northern kingdom, shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head. One head. Well, who's the head of a country? Well, it's the king. The children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head, And they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Now, if I were doing justice to this passage, I'd talk about what happened in Jezreel and all the history. That's not really significant for us. What's significant for us right now is that the prophet says, even though you're not my people, even though I'm not having mercy, even though I'm going to destroy you as a country... There'll come a day when Israel and Judah will be reunited under one head, under one king, and they're going to be so numerous and plentiful, they're going to come out of the land. It's no longer going to be just a small, little, chosen land. They're going to come up out of the land altogether, and it's going to be Judah and Israel, it's going to be everybody, under one king. There is only one way this prophecy could have come true. Northern Israel never has a physical entity ever again. And Judah will be swept off the map. God will bring them back, but they will never be a physical kingdom again. There is only one way Judah and Israel has been gathered into one king, and that is the king Jesus, the greater David. The gospel has gone out into the world, and Northern Israel, separated from God, has received the gospel. Judah, separated from God, has received the gospel. Israelites, Judeans, and quite frankly a lot of other people too, we have all been grouped under one head and we are now so large and so redeemed, the promised land is now the whole earth because it's wherever we are. Uh, Judah and Israel have been regrouped and we're under a king. It's part of the covenant. It's King Jesus. If that's not the answer, it can't be true. The descendants of the northern kingdom get so lost in the world that nobody today can trace their ancestry back to them. Now, probably there are people walking around on earth that go back there, 
but they don't know it. Were they part of Ephraim? Were they part of Asher? Uh, they don't know. They can't know. In fact, even those who call themselves Jews today can't trace any of their lineage back to Judah because it's all messed up. There's, there's no way to know. If Israel is going to be regathered under a head, if Israel is going to be under a king, which they prayed for, they have prayed, let the man at your right hand come and save us. If Psalm 80 came true, if Hosea 1 came true, it was because God sent the Lord Jesus Christ and advanced his kingdom by taking them back in again. So they cried out, deliver us by your king, and kingship is as much of the gospel as priesthood is. When evangelicals talk about the gospel, they almost exclusively talk about Christ's priesthood. He is the sacrifice for our sins, and he absolutely is. That is the essence of the gospel. It is also the essence of the gospel that Jesus Christ is our king that he subdues us to himself, he protects us from our enemies, he gathers us in again to be a people, that's the essence of the gospel too. And that is what the northern Israelites in their desperation, in their repentance, was praying for. And God said yes. And Mary had a son. 